Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City employment and civil rights law firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Workplace Justice Podcast. My name is Meyer Nassar, and I'm joined with co-host Jeffrey Rosenberg. Today's discussion is about gender justice. We are joined today by a national leader on gender justice issues and the architect of several high-impact collaborative campaigns to improve the lives of millions of women workers and students. She has represented thousands of women and girls combating sex discrimination, other unfair treatment at work and school, including before the U.S. Supreme Court. She's regularly featured as a thought leader before legislative bodies and major media outlets. Today's featured guest is the executive director of Equal Rights Advocates and the chair of Women's Agenda Campaign and the Equal Pay Today Campaign. Noreen Farrell, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and for all you do for workers. Thank you. So let's just get into it. I'm very interested in learning more about your organization. Tell us about Equal Rights Advocates. We have been around for almost 50 years, and we have fought all the groundbreaking fights for women and girls and really people across genders in the courts. We love to enforce the law on behalf of clients. We change laws that need changing, and we're really excited to be building power among students and workers and communities and families to advocate for the things they need. We tackle sexual harassment, fair pay, pregnancy discrimination, sexual harassment in school and work. A whole array of issues that I think hold women and others from being their best selves at work and school. Yeah, it's amazing. And so like you mentioned, you do a combination of things. You both are involved in catering to a number of campaigns to actually address a lot of these issues, both legislatively in terms of the general issues that exist for workers in general. And then also you're out to make sure that employers and other institutions are held accountable. And so that certainly is very, very respectable in terms of the work that you guys do. So let's talk about the issues that we're experiencing and women are experiencing today. There are still a number of challenges challenges that exist in women's rights in terms of the United States, both in the workplace as well as in various institutions throughout this country, including educational institutions. Let's talk a little bit about the gender wage gap. Just recently, we had Equal Pay Day. Obviously, your organization was running a campaign. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, look, it's insane that over 50 years after their civil rights laws passed, to make sure that women and men are paid equally. We're still experiencing a gap that's costing women hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of their careers, much worse for women of color. Just this week, we celebrated the kickoff of Equal Pay Days, which is how far into this year women have to work across different demographics to make the earnings of men on average last year. And just this week, we celebrated all women's, the average, but then it takes Black women until August to make up those wages, Native women until September. 
and uh, Latina women until October to make up those wages. And so we helped found a national network of organizations across the country that are really committed to closing the wage and race wage gap. It's mm-hmm. called Equal Pay Today. And we use those same strategies. We have a national employment uh, fair pay litigator network, and we're really strategizing about what are the cases that need to be brought to show the gaps in the law. And we're also working to change the law. And so before this new administration, we were really active in the states to really push state laws to be stronger. In California, we passed in 2015, the California Fair Pay Act, which was then the strongest equal pay law on the books in the states. And I'm happy to say that 48 states have since replicated and strengthened that model. And now we're going to see it up in the the federal space with the Paycheck Fairness Act. But you know, I think that these days throughout the year highlight all the contributors to the pay gap, which mm-hmm. are all kinds of sex discrimination. So the over-segregation of women in low-paid work and our underrepresentation in higher paid jobs, the fact that our minimum wage is too low. Two-thirds of the minimum wage earners in this country are women. Uh-huh. And that there's a tipped minimum wage, as you know, but maybe a lot of people don't know that Many tipped workers in this country actually have a sub-minimum wage of $2.13. crazy. And they have to put up with a lot of harassment in order to make tips that get them up to the minimum wage. And so that's a key component of the wage gap that we're talking about. And then, of course, shouldn't people who are working in similar jobs make the same pay? In nearly every industry, every job, there's a pay gap. And so we have a lot to battle. But I also just want to mention a part of our platform isn't the obvious. But when you think about the fact that women who are now coming out in COVID, bearing the brunt of childcare, not always having paid leave, being forced from the workplace to help their children learn, they are suffering from wage penalties. When you're forced out of the workforce because you don't have paid leave, studies have found that women coming back into the workforce make 7% less than men coming back into the workforce for the same job. And Mm. so as we think about, you know... And what's the root? Is that just plain old intentional discrimination? Or is there some other root cause that's prompting women to be paid so much less? What studies have found, and Mm -hmm. it's not surprising to all of us, is that when women are coming back, their lapse is held against them. Whereas men who are coming back from a short job laps, it's not held against them. It's excused. And one of the key pieces that we're working on is so many employers rely on what your prior salary was in your last job in setting your hiring pay. California was one of the first states to pass a law to prevent that, but it's still not the law of the land federally. And what we're trying to do is say, look, don't rely on that prior salary because it's often embedded with a lot of sex discrimination and devalued work. And so women start their jobs, very first hiring pay as being less than men because of that. And it only gets wider as they continue their careers. So that's a key policy change that we're trying to push. And for folks that are listening, it's important that employers have paid transparency. So you're not bidding against yourself or trying to combat a prior salary that wasn't really what you should have been earning. Yeah. And I think you mentioned a number of things. Tell us a little bit about like what Jeff was saying about the root cause, a little bit about the historical nature of how 
this gender wage gap exists? I know that's a, a very, very lengthy question that could potentially go into a lot of the <laughs> societal things and stuff of that nature. But I guess in terms of specifically now in the last like 50 years or so with kind of closing these gaps and kind of closing the additional gaps that have been created as a result of all these other types of institutionalized forms of discrimination against people and on the basis of gender, I guess my question is kind of big here. I'm getting to it, which is ultimately, what can we do as people to kind of overcome this? How can we hold employers to do the right thing and kind of eliminate this gap? Well, actually, I really love your question about some of the historical origins, because Mm -hmm. we just signed a letter with about 200 different women's rights organizations across the country to President Biden and to some of our elected officials, when we heard that there's movement to raise the minimum wage, but to actually exclude tipped workers from that bill. There's been some negotiation about that. And what we raised was that the tip minimum wage actually has its origins in slavery. Emancipated slaves, when they first were paid, they only were paid via tip, which of course really changes the dynamic of their work. And you see this really historic roots of Mm -hmm. how people are paid unequally. Look, until the mid-60s, it was perfectly legal to pay women less than men for their work. And what we see is it doesn't matter what industry, once women start to predominate in that industry, the wages go down. When men start to enter that industry, the wages go up. So there is implicit and explicit stereotyping about Mm. the value of women's work. And so what I would say in terms of solutions is number one, especially if someone's dealing with an individual pay discrimination claim, understand it isn't about you. It is about a system that actually benefits and profits Mm. from keeping our wages low. And often when you're negotiating a pay, you don't actually know what anybody else makes. So I get super frustrated when people say, well, you should negotiate, but I don't have all the information. If I had all the information, if you told me what the scale was of your pay Mm -hmm. and tell me what are the factors that you consider low end and high end, because there are objective factors that don't relate to your sex that put you on that scale. If employers were more transparent about that, people could say, one, I just want to tell you, I meet four of those five factors, or they could say to themselves, all right, I am a beginner. I'm on the first factor and I know what I have to do to get to the higher wage. And so I think pay transparency, asking people what they make, you know, in all that about eight states, there is some precedent for employers being able to retaliate against you if you talk about pay. And so a key piece of a new law that's coming up um, on the Paycheck Fairness Act is to prohibit that kind of retaliation. So we really always encourage people to ask others what they make, because that's pay secrecy is what keeps pay discrimination perpetuated. Yes. Mm-hmm. We all know maybe the story of Lily Ledbetter, sort of one of the most mm-hmm famous pay discrimination plaintiffs out there. She found out that she was being paid less literally at the water cooler. People get them through street secret notes. They have no idea that go through their entire careers not knowing they're paid less. And that kind of transparency, I think it would really make employers hard pressed to continue to pay people differently. So ask what other people are making, ask what factors an employer considering in pay 
and continually know your worth. Test the market. I'm so excited that we're in this other new era where there's glass doors, where there are public sharing of certain jobs and salaries. Go in there, get armed, get your information. There isn't this taboo about talking about wages like there may have been, you know, when all of us first entered the workplace. Mm -hmm. So look, I think that there's individual things people can do, but we're also trying to change the law to really fill in all those gaps through which people fall. And also sometimes people just need great legal counsel and they need representation. So I'm so glad that your firm exists. Oh, I appreciate that. (laughs) So what are, in your opinion, some of the, I know you mentioned in terms of pay transparency, but we do have Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. We have the Equal Pay Act, the, the Lilly Ledbetter Act. So why are these laws insufficient and what are some of the deficiencies and why is there a real need for more legislation? You know, what happens is as litigator, as you all are too, you litigate these cases and you feel like you've got the perfect law. And then you see how things, similar in the sexual harassment context too, which I'd love to talk about, you see that a perfect example, and this is a gap that the Paycheck Fairness would fill, great case in California where uh Great example, bad case, where a woman working in San Francisco was being paid less than employees that were working in Fresno. Male, they, She didn't have um, any males in her particular business location, but she tried to compare it to other business locations. And there was a dispute that you can't rely on showing comparisons in different business locations of the same employer. So she didn't have the right comparator for her case to show discrimination. And so the Paycheck Fairness Act would say, look, if you've got an employer with a bunch of different locations, you might be the only one in the small little office. But if you can compare them and show that there isn't market reasons why they're paid differently, you can use that to prove your case. So all this stuff sounds like common sense, right? It's really being expressed that you can't be retaliated against for talking about pay. Even in California, where this has been the law for some time, I still get Mm -hmm. calls. We have a national helpline and we get a lot of people from California, too, who say, oh, yeah, it's just clear you're not supposed to talk about pay. And it's really challenging to find out if you actually are paid inequitably if you can't find that out. So these are the kinds of gaps that we find are really troubling in cases. And so over the years, we've just thought about all the gaps and we have thought about laws that can fill them. And Mm -hmm. we need really smart attorneys to be helping us to continue to identify those as we push ahead in terms of our policy work. Okay, Wonderful. One thing you mentioned previously was about the what I kind of recognize is that power dynamic, the power dynamic of how institutions that are somewhat embedded with these societal processes as to how things should be viewed, how things should be, and our fight back, in essence, to try to eliminate that, right? This is that battle. And we're talking about power dynamics from the context of sexual harassment. And I think that this is something that we recognize a lot more as practitioners about how much of that power dynamic in the relationship between an employer or somebody who is in a position of some power can use that power in a manner in which they exploit or take advantage of someone who has less of it and kind of leveling that playing field with law for protections. What are your thoughts about your work with ERA in terms of sexual harassment and ways that we can kind of combat this in a much more broader level? I'm so appreciative that you're asking this question because I think the Me Too movement, I think, exposed. Well, one, I think the Me Too movement was important because after so many years, our fight was 
proving that it happens. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the Me Too movement shifted to like, that's it happens. How do we make it stop? There was a new conversation that presumed that it happens. And sexual harassment is and always has been the number one form of complaint we receive on our helpline. Mm -hmm. And I will know, and you all know this, it happens in every single industry. We represent janitors and servers and professors and women in tech. And so it really is across every position and every industry. And I think that the power dynamic is so critical. And it starts from the moment someone takes a job when they have to sign agreements that say they will arbitrate their claims. They will be quiet about their claims. In order to resolve a complaint, they have to sign away their rights. And so it's both sort of this system power, and it's also just personal power. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. If you have a supervisor that is allowed to continue to harass, and no one above him or her or them is doing anything about it, there is an incredible sense of helplessness to folks who are experiencing sexual harassment. You know, in, in your state, you're hearing it with respect to the governor. And, yeah. and, and time and time again, we hear employers who really are supposed to be getting it don't understand their power, even among very educated and powerful women in their own right. That power dynamic is really, really such a crucial factor. And so what we aim to do with the law, and so glad that we do this in community with you, is to really level that playing field by not having people sign away their actual rights, by making sure that employers are held accountable when they protect repeat repetitor, that they aren't able to silence people through settlements and get tax deductions through their settlements, mm. which is a component of one of the federal pieces of legislation. And I have been really heartened. We are co-leads of a network of states to stop harassment. And our goals are to push the strongest slates of Me Too legislation in the entire country across the country. And I'm so happy that we're finally gaining traction on ending silencing agreements, on making sure that people don't have to arbitrate their claims necessarily in order to have their legal right. We're making sure that there are more nuanced training. You know, the law also kind of creates power dynamics in what it defines as sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. There are many courts across the country that really hold it to a very, very high standard. We just passed a law in California. We're trying to get it passed. It's called the no one free grope rule. And that stemmed out of a case, a federal case that involving an EMT worker whose co-worker, while she was doing her job, taking emergency calls, brought his hand over her and grabbed her breast in her shirt. And a federal court said, look, that was not that severe and it wasn't that pervasive, so you don't win. And so we literally brought a bill saying we want to abolish the one free grope rule. <laughs> and Oh, it wasn't on the basis of a lack of notice. But also that that wasn't severe enough. So, God. you know, the law is, has to be either severe, or it has to be pervasive. pervasive. And this permission granted by how law is interpreted, I will tell you that the Ninth Circuit judge that decided that case was later exposed as having sexually harassed law clerks oh. in his chambers. And this is how, right, people in power who are making decisions, mm -hmm. who are signing bills who are deciding cases are often not completely clear in terms of their own behavior. And so it's up to really smart attorneys like us to see that, to represent people and really make sure that these legal decisions don't further disempower workers who need our help.
other than changing the law, there should be ways to convince management and businesses that it's actually in the interest of the business from a financial standpoint to eliminate discrimination, sexual harassment, pay wage gaps. Like how it just seems like they have such incentives to keep the things, to keep the law the way it is. Have you found any techniques or ways to really convince management that this is the right thing to do from a business standpoint? Well, I have both a a legal and a non-legal answer to that. I think that I've been really heartened how our legal strategies have been joined by consumer pressure strategies throughout the Me Too movement. I mean, Bill O'Reilly had 10 settlements under his belt from women, and it really took a matter of four weeks and consumer pressure pulling out hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising dollars from his show on Fox News for him to be finally shown the door with a, a golden parachute as an aside. Of course. But I think that there's been a reckoning with Me Too. I think that there has been a spotlight on the fact that often HR departments can be complicit mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to helpful in sexual harassment. And I think that it's really incumbent upon employers. Look, it's a competitive job market to retain people, to attract people. There are shareholders to be beholden to. And so these are factors that are bottom line business decisions, but just also in terms of what you get, the best thing that you get from your workers is if you make them feel safe, you give them their best chance to be successful. You have to be absolutely clear about your policies. You have to put them in action. You have to put them in action again and again. You have to provide very specific examples about what is harassment. What is a hostile environment? It doesn't have to be a sexualized one. There's no end to resources to employers to do this right. But often we need to enforce the law for them to be incentivized. <laughs> to do what's right. Yeah. Let me ask you this, Noreen. Obviously, I'm sure that you've heard this question from many people. And a lot of times those that are questioning people's intent, especially when it comes to sexual harassment, a lot of times the victims and survivors of these type of circumstances, situations, incidents, it takes a lot of courage for them to be able to speak up against it. Sometimes it takes them years. Sometimes they don't even talk about it ever. What would you tell the listeners, those that are women that are listening, about speaking up? You know, when people reflect on the progress of the movement, I always deflect any of that on us. And I give it all to the women and other workers who have courageously stood up against all odds. In my work, we represent women like janitors who are often not even full-time employees, but temporary employees. They may have a green card. They may not. They are extremely vulnerable and I want to just share a story of a woman named Maria Bohorquez, who we represented. And she worked for a company called ABM and worked in our ferry bell doing in San Francisco, not far from where I am right now. She was a temp worker and she was sexually harassed and then assaulted late at night, isolated, you know, these isolated workplaces. And then she complained. She followed the steps that you're supposed to. She complained Mm -hmm. and then she was not given any work ever again. She came to us and she wasn't sure that she wanted to take the case. She did not want to tell her husband what happened to her. She did not want to tell her five children. And so we told her, we're going to try to get you justice without you having to do all that. It wasn't until probably several weeks before trial that she actually told her family the full extent of what happened to her. And it wasn't until several weeks before trial that she told me 
the full extent of what happened to her. But I want to let you know that she won her case. She got a million dollar verdict. She prevailed on appeal. We wound up settling the case on different components. She insisted, look, this isn't just about me. I would like to have a piece of my settlement be that it doesn't happen to other people. And so part of it was a change in the company's procedures. And then and then we said, look, why should it just be this company? Why don't we go to the unions that represent janitors? And we ask that they put this language in their collective bargaining agreements, helping mm-hmm. Tens of thousands of janitors in the state. And then we said, but what about all the ununionized janitors? And so we formed a Yabasta coalition, which means enough is enough, with women janitor leaders to pass a law taking the relief that Maria Bohorkas stood up for into a law that's now benefiting 200,000 janitors in California. The law has been replicated in two other states and is now being considered by other low-paid industries like agriculture and migrant workers. So from one person who couldn't even name what happened to her to me until right before trial, she has you know, had a legacy of a decade of help of millions of people that were in her shoes. Not every case shows up like that, but we view every single case as part of that movement. And so I would just encourage you to find a place where you feel safe, find a great lawyer, and slowly defend yourself as best Mm -hmm. you can. We're very proud for every step that someone can make, and it can really change the face of our workplace. Yeah, that's phenomenal. That's a great, definitely a great story, and certainly a very common story for a lot of those people that are put in those situations and those positions where their circumstances, the difficulties of life in general, their relationships, all the things that they have to do, they put all of that before their experiences and the difficulties that they've had to deal with and somewhat experience. And it's such a difficult thing. So it's certainly a remarkable story. And and certainly Maria has empowered so many others by her legacy of having spoken up. And and it tells you a lot about how hard it is in, in that situation. So yeah, that's wonderful. Wonderful to hear. Now, let's talk a little bit about different forms of sex discrimination that somebody experiences. Obviously, sexual harassment is the more more publicized form of sexual discrimination. What would you say to our listeners today in terms of other forms of sex discrimination that individuals in the workplace experience across the board? We are not just any one thing. We all have intersectional identities. We have gender, we have sexual orientation, we have our race and ethnicity, and many workers experience harm to the workplace because of all of those things. So it's really important when you think about, wow, I feel that this treatment is different, or that you think about all the identities that might come into play, age, disability, ethnicity, race, marital status, your gender identity. And I'm grateful that we're finally seeing more of those cases that really show the compounds of harm based on all of our identities. And we do have in our federal law, a fairly comprehensive list, which has just been expanded by a recent Supreme Court case to make sure that it includes gay and transgender people, the Bostock decision. We have happening in Congress right now, uh, push for the Equality Act that would expand protections into other spheres for LGBTQ plus people. And I think that often folks come to us with thinking that they have one problem, and then we unearth really just all the ways that their identities are compounding that problem. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that it is important not to think about this as just sex discrimination or race discrimination. It's this, it tends to be a combination. Yeah, there certainly is a lot of the intersectionality forms of experiences that an individual has to deal with when it comes to discrimination within the workplace. And with the postdoc decision certainly kind of provided us as practitioners a different view on sex discrimination in terms of expanding it. What were your thoughts, immediate thoughts when the decision came out? Well, we had been making the argument for some time about a gender expansive identity argument about our sex discrimination laws. But really, that is not accepted as the law of the land in many parts of this country. Mm -hmm. And as I look at this wave of really horrible and mean-spirited anti-trans kids legislation that's coming out across the country, Minnesota, you know, just introduced a bill that would criminalize trans youth that try to join girls sports teams. It really, it's very powerful. We need, we need guidance from the United States Supreme Court on this. Now, I'm not going to say that I have full faith that the United States Supreme Court is the place where we want all of our civil rights issues to be decided at this point in time, but I was gratified of that recognition by the court. And I think it really validated the reality of our workplaces and the reality of the kinds of experience that millions of people have in our LGBT community. So I was I was very happy to see it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about Title IX. Let's talk about the protections that an individual has within institutions, universities, schools. And what does equal rights advocates do for victims of any form of sex-based discrimination within these institutions? One of the reasons why I'm really honored to do Title IX work is that I think that kids are what they learn. If we allow inequities in schools to persist, that's what they expect from their first, Mm -hmm. second, third, fourth, fifth jobs. If we allow harassment and violence to happen in schools, those students become emboldened in the workplace. And so we really feel like Title IX, which prohibits sex discrimination in schools, that receive federal funds, which are all mostly, is just been one of the most transformational pieces of legislation that's been passed in our space, passed in 1972. And it prohibits sex discrimination in all educational programs. And so that does include athletics. For many of us, myself included, my athletics was a key part of my educational experience and paved the way for me to be the first to go to college and to get some money to do that. So it's just, it's it's very core. What's been interesting as a Title IX litigator is seeing how slowly it's been confirmed to um, apply to different facets. So it took a court case to confirm that it applies to sexual harassment. We actually litigated the first case that established that schools could be held liable if they allow peer sexual harassment to continue. That was a case, Doe versus Petaluma. And that has proved to be very, very important. I think that the problem with Title IX is that there are a lot of different views about how it needs to be enforced. And so one thing that came out of the President Obama administration was really clear directives through the Department of Education, Office for Civil Rights, about how schools need to be interpreting Title IX to prevent and address sexual harassment and discrimination in schools. And what we saw through the Trump administration 
was a complete rollback of those very important guidance by the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. In addition to representing students in both sports and harassment and assault cases, we decided to sue the Trump administration when that happened and Betsy DeVos. And we actually had our trial on that case the day before the election. And yes, I just thought that she would just say, okay, I give up. But she didn't. And it was actually in a federal district court in Massachusetts. And we're waiting for that decision because we think that it will help the Biden administration as it rethinks about those regulations. And so we have at ERA the nation's only pro bono legal network that's dedicated to representing student survivors. It's called the Enough Network, and it's part of our initiative to end sexual violence in education. We basically founded this network once DeVos was appointed because we felt there would be a really an onslaught of students who experience harassment without protection from the federal government. I mean, we need look only as far as the president to know that permission was going to be granted for this kind of abuse at school and in the workplace. And so we formed this network to make sure that there was a support, a legal support network for students. And it has been, it really brings close to home that the sense of what happens when your education is disrupted. We all have an equal right to be educated, safe from harm. And that's not the experience of many of our kids across the country. And so we're very dedicated to enforcing Title IX. We're very dedicated to making sure that there's guidance to schools that make sense, that protect the rights of all kids, and that we can really just let kids be educated because this is our next generation of leaders. Yeah, that's definitely amazing. So for individuals that are listening, if they were to, in any situation, experience any form of sex discrimination within an institution such that they can actually reach out to your organization for assistance, they would be able to do that. Yeah, they would be able to do that. And obviously, we have a great network of partners that also do this work. And um, so glad to see that your firm does this work, because not many typical civil rights firms do this. So our goal is to train as many lawyers as possible to take on as many cases as possible. And it's really needed, even in what I'll say to your listeners is, if you put a call in, there's a potential school process for your complaint. Mm -hmm. And we have found it's very helpful to have legal assistance during that school process for your complaint because it can be re-traumatizing. There can be irrelevant questions about your sexual history. There can be ways in which they try to bring a student with their perpetrator. There can be delays in getting protective orders so that you don't have to sit in every single class with the person who sexually assaulted you while your case is going on. Safety measures. So these are all the ways that legal assistance can help you through that process even if you decide not to file a lawsuit ultimately. That's great. And so let's talk a little bit about the new legislation, which is still pending, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. So I wanted to hear a little bit of your thoughts in terms of your organization, your own personal thoughts about that proposed legislation. Ah, Yeah, I mean, it. believe it or not, equal rights advocates argue the first pregnancy discrimination case before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1974. arguing the very novel, I guess, argument that pregnancy discrimination was a form of sex discrimination. And believe it or not, we lost that case in 1974, Mm. but we wound up 
winning the war in that in 1978, we amended our federal law to make sure that it was express about that because the Supreme Court didn't mm. seem to be convinced by our, our legal argument five years earlier. Since then, we continue to see discrimination based on pregnancy, but also this situation where an, an employer doesn't out and out fire you because you're pregnant, but they fail to give you an a reasonable accommodation. We mm. had two cases last year, one on behalf of grocery workers, tens of thousands of grocery workers who were not given reasonable pregnancy accommodations, like sitting behind the deli counter until somebody comes, not having to lift big boxes. Even if they don't really lift big boxes anyway, the fact that they asked for that accommodation, what would happen? And this is similar to we represented a class of airport security workers. Why can't they sit on a stool while they're pregnant? And employers use this as an excuse to say, you need to take your leave early. We can't accommodate mm. pregnant pregnancy accommodation. We can't let you sit. We can't give you a couple more bathroom breaks. We can't say that you'll never be required to have do a heavy lifting. And they force pregnant workers out on leave too early. Your listeners may not know is that you only have a certain amount of time when you're pregnant where your job is protected. And mm -hmm. so if you make that leave too early, if you're forced out at four months or five months, you may run out of time under federal and state law to have your job back when you get back. And for most people, that's unpaid leave. Unpaid, unpaid. Right. So what we did in California, we passed a pregnancy accommodation law. We basically said, look, employer, you got to sit down and you got to work this out. And there's some reasonable accommodations you can give. And we decided to do a study on our helpline. We opened up our helpline and we tracked complaints coming out of California versus other states that didn't have that pregnancy accommodation law. And of course, as you can imagine, there was a ton of calls from people that didn't have the law. And one of the pushbacks that we got about the law is, oh, it's going to make all of this new litigation. If you have a law saying we have to do something, there's going to be all these new cases. Well, actually, we found the opposite, that there were fewer cases filed because the accommodation process in California is very much like everyone knows. The employer, if I have to call, I mean, if I'm the next step, I say, look, you got to accommodate. You know, it's become part of the culture. And so there's less litigation. We decided that we worked with some folks, a better balance in New York in order to pass a pregnancy accommodation law there. And they've been great leaders in this. And then we convened a national coalition and we said, let's do this at the federal level. What? Why is this so hard? And employers are already doing it for disabled employees. I mean, there's no yeah. difference. I mean, there's yeah. no, it I mean, doesn't I make sense that, why someone who's disabled should be able to get an accommodation and a pregnant woman shouldn't. I that think that this comes back to your early question about why would pregnancy be viewed as anything but a disability? Uh, the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act really bases itself on the ADA, the Americans with Disability Act, and, and says that pregnancy is a form of disability, which is a little bit different than how it's handled in California. But it really is, we had to legislate this because one of the cases that we filed before the, that went to the U.S. Supreme Court was a case on behalf of workers at AT&T, who they found out when they retired that they were not given service credit for the time that they were on pregnancy leaves, unlike other workers who took other kinds of disability leaves. 
Mm -hmm. And we actually, and they lost, you know, a lot of money in their retirement benefits, because even if it's just like eight months over the course of a lifetime, it's just that that money accumulates in terms of retirement benefits. We actually lost that case. It was a case called Haltine versus AT&T. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, this is why there needs to be more women on the US Supreme Court. And so there's just been a lot of cases that make those distinctions. And so this kind of law that really makes it clear that pregnancy is a form of temporary disability and reasonable accommodations that don't cut against the essential functions of the job should be accommodated as much as somebody who goes out who's had a back injury and then needs to nurse it a little bit. And I think that it will be a huge step for women across the country. You know, our rights should not depend on our zip code. And that's why these federal bills are really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that certainly is true for all the women that are listening to this podcast, that it's so important that we work on trying to advocate for legislation that is going to provide better workplace protections for women across the board in all different forms of the overall life of a woman, including pregnancy, and no matter what racial or national origin you come from, that everyone should have a right to be seen, to feel like they belong and they have opportunity at an equal level as anybody else. Noreen, I want to thank you. So beautifully said. Thank you. I appreciate it. Listen, it's inspired by you. I am so grateful, so thankful for you taking out the time to speak about this very important issue that has so much more work to do. We are so grateful and appreciative of all of the work that your organization does. It is truly, truly inspirational. We are a small firm, but we look to you in terms of your leadership and all of the activity that your organization does in order to make workers throughout this country and people throughout this country live in a much more protected environment. So thank you for that. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Keep it's up so the good wonderful fight. to be here with such civil rights champions as, as those in your firm and to you and to everyone listening. We are doing this together and we won't stop until we get it right. Yes. Awesome. Wonderful. Noreen, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, Head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.